0: In the year 2016, my bucket list got a little shorter as I was able to cross another one off that list. I grew up when the Indianapolis 500 was the biggest sporting event in the state of Indiana. Some could argue it was the biggest sporting event in the world. It's called the greatest spectacle in racing. Even today, um, it's the largest attended one-day, one-event sporting event in the world usually three to four hundred thousand people attend that race every year and when I was six years old in 1966 a driver a rookie showed up at the Indianapolis 500 by the name of Mario Andretti that was about the time I began following that race the Indy 500 closely so immediately I gravitated to him here was this young charismatic Rookie driver with an Italian accent who could really drive. So I started to follow him and follow his career. I went to several races as a kid. I was always following him. He won the race in 1969. And so for me growing up, I loved to see what he was doing, not only in Indy cars, but in other cars as well. One thing I always dreamed about was about going around the track, the Indianapolis 500. Last year, I got to run around it. I did the Indy Mini, the half marathon, which takes you to the Indianapolis 500, and you actually run around the entire track. And I, but I wanted to ride around it, not in one of those tour buses when you take the tour and go 30 or 40 miles per hour, but I, I've done that. Not in a pace car that goes 120 miles per hour on the track. I actually have had the chance to do that, and that was pretty cool. But I always dreamed about going around the Indianapolis 500 in an Indy car going over 200 miles per hour. I never thought it would happen in my lifetime. And then in early 2016, I found out that they were offering rides to a select few. To go around the Indianapolis 500 in an Indy car at over 200 miles per hour. And when I saw that, I said, This is for me. Then I found out it was a two seater. You rode in the back, a driver was in the front of this Indy car. I found out that Mario Andretti would be the one driving it. And I said, This has my name written all over it. So on Memorial Day, a Monday, of course, of the year 2016, one day after they had run the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500, I was standing in the pits, putting on a driver's suit and a helmet, and about ready to climb into an car with Mario Andretti. We went three laps around the track, and he promised me that he would exceed the speed of 200 miles per hour. It was the thrill of a lifetime. When we pulled back into the pits and they unstrapped me and I got out I took my helmet off, my wife, Janet was standing right there waiting and she said, well, how was it? And my first words to her were, I cannot believe these guys do this for 500 miles. It was intense. I couldn't even hold my head up straight in the turns. And so, that was kind of a dream for me. Would you like to see what that ride was like for me? Well, I'm glad you're shaking your head yes because I'm gonna show you anyway. I actually have a video of me riding with Mario Andretti. I'm not gonna show you all three laps, but I'll show you about one minute of it so you can experience a little bit of what I got to experience. Check this out. That was the coolest thing in the world. And, uh, yeah, you can clap, yeah. I, I would have too if I could have held my hands up when I was in the car. But that was a really cool thing. And by the way, Mario Andretti, when he took me on that ride, was 78 years old. And he still drives around the track like he's 28 years old. Almost as thrilling for me was to get to meet him in person. After he took us on these rides, they had a reception with him. We got to talk to him. I mean, this is the driver I idolized as I was growing up. I mean, I know his son's name, Michael, who drove for years. I know his grandson, Marco, drives now. And I was talking to this man in person. I couldn't believe this is happening. You've got to understand this. When I was a kid growing up in the 1960s, I used to take my little Stingray bike, and you probably have to be from the 1960s to know what a Stingray bike is. But I used to take my Stingray bike, out, and I had this little makeshift oval track down from my house in the neighborhood, and I would go around and around and around that pretending I was Mario Andretti. And here I was talking to him. However, one thing I noticed is that he was different in person than I had imagined. Um, For one thing, he was smaller than I had ever imagined. I got my picture taken with him. Check this out. Yeah, (laughs) he's not a very big guy, which works well if you're a driver, actually, to be that small. By the way, before I move on, be sure and notice, just to Mario Andretti's right, it's signed and it says, To Jerry, okay? So it is personalized, I want you to notice that. But anyway, it, it was fascinating to me that he was different than I expected the perception I have, but mostly in a lot of good ways. I couldn't believe how down to earth he was. He was so unassuming. He just seemed like an ordinary guy, very humble. This is the guy who had won the Indianapolis 500. He had won the Daytona 500, and he won the Formula One championship. Nobody in the world has ever done that before. He's the only person. And here I was talking to him and getting um, to take a ride with him. It was so so cool. But here, here's something I learned. Um, my perception changed that day of him. My perception of him became much more clear when I got to meet him in person and talk to him and see what he was really like. And you know, perception can be different than reality, can it? You know, that's also true for a follower of Jesus. Perception can be different than reality. And sometimes it's really helpful to get a clearer picture of what a follower of Jesus is really like or should be like as well. And we want to talk about that today because, you know, some people think, uh, well, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you better be good all the time and you better not break any rules or God isn't going to like you. Man, if that was my perception, I think I'd say, well, that's not for me. Or some people might think, well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be a Democrat. Or if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be a Republican. Or some people you know, might think, you know, a follower of Jesus, they take themselves way too seriously. They can't have any fun at all. No thanks, that's not for me either. You know, maybe someone has a perception that's different from reality of what a follower of Jesus is based on what they've read. Maybe it's from what they've seen. Maybe they've seen a coworker who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. And they said, eh, I don't think that's for me. Or a neighbor or even a family member. Now many of us here today are followers of Jesus. And we all have a perception of what a follower of Jesus should be or what a follower of Jesus is like. So, so what do you think a follower of Jesus is like? What do you, how, how do you think a follower of Jesus should act? And can you be a follower of Jesus and still be a Kentucky basketball fan? Is that possible? Can you be a follower of Jesus and be a New England Patriots fan? Yeah, no, I didn't think so. <laughs> Especially in this audience, I knew that was an easy one for you guys this morning. So we're going to talk about that today, not, not what it's like to be a New England Patriots fan, but um, maybe we should be actually, but... Um, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. So perhaps we can change a little bit of some of our perception so that it can become more like reality. You know, there are, and we're, by the way, we're going to do this series for several weeks now. We're calling it Welcome to God. And this is kind of a soft launch to it this morning. What we're going to do throughout the months of January and even into February is just introduce us to God to get to know Him better. And, We're going to find out that he wants to get to know us better, too. And we're actually going to find out how we can get to know God better. So I think you're going to find this a really fascinating series. It's going to be a great one to invite your friends to as well. But the question I want to ask today is what are the marks of a follower of Jesus? How do you know someone is a follower of Jesus? And actually, we're going to keep it real simple because Jesus kept it real simple. Essentially, he gave two marks of what a follower of Jesus is like. Before we get that, to that, though, I think it's important to have some background information. Jesus actually went out and enlisted followers when he was on earth. And let me give you an example of that. This is um, Luke 5:27. Here's what it says. Later, as Jesus left town, he saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Jesus uses the word disciple. The concept of following someone in discipleship were actually linked together in Jesus' day. Now we, most of us did not, but if you grew up in a Jewish home, and if you grew up in a Jewish home in Jesus' day, you went to a school very similar to our elementary schools where you were taught how to read and how to write. You also memorized the Torah, which were the first five books of the Old Testament. So during your elementary school years, you could quote from memory Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, only the best... Male students were considered beyond that for higher education. Boys ages 12 to 15 were allowed to move on to secondary school where they continued their education and studied the entire Jewish Bible, which is what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures, the first half of our Bible. Then at age 15, only the best of the best, the elite students were chosen to take their education to the highest level. They were the summa cum laude students from Harvard and Yale. Probably not Bryan College, okay? That's my alma mater, by the way. The school they attended was literally called the House of Discipleship. What they had to do was find a Jewish rabbi, someone they respected, someone they wanted to learn from, and they would ask him if they could follow him. Then he would have to agree to this. And if he agreed to it, it was a huge honor. These were the cream of the crop. These were the MIT students of discipleship. And once a rabbi accepted them, their goal was to become like that rabbi. They followed him around until age 30, when they then became rabbis. So the concept of discipleship was very familiar in that culture. But Jesus, like he often did, approached it a little differently. He didn't wait for men to come to him and ask if they could follow him. Instead, he took the initiative. He went to 12 different men and he said, follow me, be my disciple. And interestingly, he didn't go to the elite of the elite. He didn't find the Harvard and Yale alumni not even the Bryan College grads. He even asked some very uneducated guys to follow him. Some, for example, were fishermen by trade. He asked very ordinary people to follow him. Sometimes Jesus asked people who weren't accepted by society, like the guy we just read about, Levi, Levi. Nobody liked tax collectors. They cheated people. You would not ask a tax collector to be your disciple. No way. It just didn't happen. But Jesus did. Now, after spending three years with his disciples and showing them what it meant to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, Jesus then asked them to go out and make other disciples. Jesus, some of his last words before he left the earth, and went back to heaven were these in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He said, therefore, he's talking to his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is the way Jesus changed the world. Over 2,000 years later, it's still happening. People are still enlisting themselves as disciples or followers of Jesus and trying to pattern their lives after him. You know, Jesus didn't say, okay, guys, go get Peter elected president. That's how we're going to change the world. He didn't say, find an actor, find an athlete, find a rock star. Get them to be an outspoken follower of me. No, instead, he simply said, make followers. In other words, discipleship was to be the path to changing the world. Discipleship was to be the path to changing the world. Not government, not education, not socioeconomic status. Discipleship. Now remember how I said that the goal of a disciple was to learn from and become like the rabbi? That's the goal of a disciple of Jesus, to become like Jesus. Here were Jesus' words in Luke 6 verse 40. I want, them, I want to read them to you, and as I do, I want you to hear them or understand them in the context of what I've just told you about the culture and school of discipleship in Jesus' time. Here's what it says. Students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. That's a pretty simple strategy for changing the world, isn't it? Become like your teacher, and then go out and make other disciples Who will become like the teacher or more succinctly become like Jesus so what was Jesus like and how do you become like Jesus what are the marks of a disciple or follower of Jesus as I already mentioned it's not complicated Jesus gave two very explicitly here's the first acceptance and practice of Jesus' teachings. A true follower of Jesus is marked by truth. John 8, 31 and 32, these are Jesus' own words. Here's what he said. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples, there it is, if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, Jesus is saying there is a standard, and we are to live by that standard, and that standard is truth. For a follower of Jesus, that standard is Jesus' teachings, according to what we read in John 8, 31 and 32. Or we could say the entire Bible, since Jesus also endorsed the entire Old Testament, that first half of our Bible. Many people today would say, it's okay to believe what you want to believe, as long as it doesn't affect someone else. But is that really true? You know, we place a high value on expressing our opinion today. And that happens, obviously, quite often on social media. But does every opinion carry equal weight? And what if one opinion comes in conflict with another opinion? Who then decides what is right and what is wrong? And what if my opinion is that I should be able to play loud music at midnight in my front yard. But you would rather sleep. That's why there's a need for laws or standards. Now we would all acknowledge that there is a need for true standards or laws. We have laws for our greater good, right? God is our loving creator. He knows what is best for us since he created us. His standard of truth is ultimately for our own good. If truth exists, then it takes precedence over my opinion, your opinion, or anyone else's opinion. Is there some sort of absolute truth that I should believe? A follower of Jesus would say, yes, it's the teachings of the Bible. Absolute truth is a good thing. However, it is by definition exclusive because it excludes that which is wrong, or that which is false. But truth is good, and it's best for us. I I'm, wanna I'm show you an example of this, and to do so, we're gonna bring out two pitchers of water, and set them here on the table. And let's, uh, let's just say that this pitcher here represents pure, clean water. And we'll say that this pitcher here, uh, we'll just pretend that it's filled with poison. But by looking, you can't tell which one is the pure, clean water and which one has poison in it. Now, I know that this one is the good water, the clean water, and I know that this one is poisonous. This is harmful to you. Now, if you were to walk up on stage and say, I want to take a drink of water, and you were start to drink out of this one, I would say to you, don't do that. It will poison you. If I were to say that, that's not intolerant or unloving because it's true. If you say, well, that's okay for you to believe that, but I believe differently, that hasn't changed the truth of what I've said. Truth is always best for us. Now, truth can come in conflict with your own personal beliefs or opinions. Jesus always spoke truth. And he spoke truth because he loves us and knows what is best for us. Now, Jesus didn't tolerate sin, but he loved sinful people. And so when Jesus was on earth, he would say things like, I forgive you, go and sin no more. He would speak truth. By the way, we live in a world of absolute truth. If there were no absolute truths, life would be chaotic. If someone says, I don't believe in red lights at intersections, that, then there's eventually going to be a crash, right? You have to live by absolutes. You can't live in a world that says, if you want to believe what you want to believe and decide to stop at red light, that's okay for you, but make sure you don't push your belief on me. It doesn't work to hold to that way of thinking. So the first mark of a disciple of Jesus is acceptance and practice of his teachings. Jesus even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, what does this mean practically for those of us who say we are followers of Jesus? That means that I align my life, my attitude, and my beliefs with the truth or teachings of the Bible. And if I find that there's a conflict or discrepancy between my life and the beliefs of the Bible, then I make the necessary changes. And that's actually why it's so necessary to, and important to regularly read your Bible. That's one reason we're doing this Ridge Reading Challenge in 2018. So it gives us an opportunity every week, almost every day of the week, to be able to read the Bible and to read truth and have God speak into our lives so consider this if you're a follower of Jesus do you have any changes today that you need to make based on what you know to be true now there's a second mark of a follower of Jesus like I said there are just two that Jesus gave very explicitly and here's the second one love For each other. Jesus is clear on this one too. Let me read to you um, John 13, verses 34 and 35. He said, These are his words again. So now I am giving you a new commandment love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And check out this statement your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You prove that you are a follower of Jesus by your attitude towards others and how you treat them. Jesus was loving to all. Let that sink in. Love does not pick or choose based on gender, race, socioeconomic status, appearance, political views, lifestyle. So what does it mean to love others? Let me explain to you how Jesus told us to show love to others. First, love acts for the good of others. Love acts for the good of others. You know, one of the most famous quotes Jesus ever gave, and we know it as the golden rule, it's Matthew seven twelve says this, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the Law and the Prophets. When you take time to consider that statement, you realize the brilliance in one simple statement. Treat others like you want to be treated. It's profound. Jesus said that is the essence of the law. And if you think about it, if we practice that one thing, it would essentially eliminate the need for law. Love will do what's best for your next door neighbor. Love doesn't manipulate or deceive in a relationship. Love doesn't cheat on your spouse because love does what's best for your spouse. Love doesn't get angry and yell at your parents or kids or siblings. Love doesn't lie to a coworker, a boss, or a customer. Love doesn't steal from the company. Love doesn't take extended lunch breaks because that would not be in the company's best interest. Now this doesn't mean that we don't love someone if we do some of these things from time to time, but it does mean that at that moment we didn't do the loving thing. To do the loving thing in every situation would be to do what is best for the other person. Love is the solution. Love fulfills God's law. Every commandment in the Bible directed towards others is fulfilled if we just love our neighbor as ourself. So a disciple of Jesus consistently strives to act in the best interest of others. And here's how Jesus explained that, how he explained love. The second thing is this. Love is an act, and so a choice. Let me explain. Back to Matthew seven twelve. Notice that first sentence again, and I'm going to stress a word as I read it. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. Do to others. It is not what you feel for others. You choose to show love by how you treat them. You know, you think about it. This is so important in marriages. To love our spouse isn't to feel a certain way, To love our spouse is to act in his or her best interests. And that's a choice. One of the more well-known stories that Jesus told in the Bible is the uh, Good Samaritan. We actually still use that term today, don't we? Good Samaritan. And let me summarize it for you. A Jewish man is attacked, beat up, and robbed. A Jewish priest comes along and sees him, but he crosses to the other side of the road and ignores him. A temple assistant. In other words, another religious person comes along, sees this guy, but keeps walking too. The third guy comes along who is a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They didn't like each other. They despised each other. The Samaritan stops, helps him, bandages his wounds, gives him a ride on a donkey to a hotel, took care of him, and paid for his accommodations in that hotel. So Jesus asks a question. Who is loving? Answer, The one who chose to act in the best interest of the guy who was mugged. And then Jesus adds, for all of us now, go and do the same. And by the way, there it is again, a do word. Go and do the same. An action word. Now, we don't know why the first two guys, the two religious guys, didn't stop and help him. Maybe they even felt something for the guy. Maybe they felt sorry for him. Maybe they felt compassion for the guy. Maybe they felt like they should help. But they didn't stop. And we can only speculate. You know, if I speculate as to why they didn't stop, I can give you a lot of thoughts that I've had before when I did not do the loving thing. Thoughts like, I'm too busy. I don't have time right now. Or, if I stop... This could get complicated. Or, eh, he probably deserved it anyway. He must have made poor decision and was hanging out with the wrong crowd. By the way, I can do or act lovingly even when I don't feel like it because love isn't a feeling. It's a decision or an act. And it's easy to love those who love us, isn't it? That's not hard. But do you really want to show love Find someone you don't like, someone you don't agree with, someone who is totally different than you. Find someone who is completely different from you in their political views or their views on race or sexuality and show them love. Find someone who sets you off on social media every time they put a post up and show them love. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, I've tried to show some people love, but when I have, they haven't showed them back. Here's what we're saying when we say that. My motive was selfish. I didn't get anything back from it. That's not love. Love has no strings attached, no conditions. That's not the Jesus kind of love. Now, if you want to wait around until it's convenient or your kids are grown or until you get less time consuming job or you get better at it or until you retire that's really not love either what does love look like in our relationships how about in a marriage it looks like this you've had a long day at work you get home you're tired and all you want to do is have an hour to yourself but instead you offer to watch the kids for the next hour so your spouse can have some downtime. At work, it might look like this. Responding in kindness and with patience to a person who doesn't deserve it because you project yourself into his or her world and you know that they're dealing with some really tough stuff at home right now. With our neighbor, it might mean going out of our way to help them. We see them painting their garage one Saturday and our plans were to go fishing, shopping, golfing, or relax on the patio. Instead, we grab a paintbrush and go next door and say, Can I help? Or maybe this time of year, we grab a snow shovel. It's radical stuff. It's way out of our comfort zone. It stretches us. It's not stuff that we see happen in our world. But that marks you as a follower of Jesus. Love, the Jesus kind of love, is the mark of a disciple of Jesus. So your brand as a Jesus follower is truth and love. Truth says, I will do the right thing and I will hold on to right things. Love says, I'll act for the good of others. Now that may create some tension at times when you try to figure out how those two interact. But do you see the brilliant and profound way in which those two do interact? Doing the loving thing is always best, but it's always in the context of what is right and true. Because we know that the standard of truth is always the best and loving thing for us. This isn't easy. But when it's lived out, it's transformational. And it's Jesus' plan to change the world one life at a time.